At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. So we come now to section two, um, which in which I take up the whole subject uh, of part of the balance with regard to the future prospects of the church as uh, the tribulation predicted in Matthew 24. And there's a lot more going on here, but I think most people do associate and properly associate Matthew 24 uh, with the notion of the persecution, difficulty, tribulation the church experiences in this age. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not going to read the whole passage here. We'll read it in parts as we go through it. So by way of introduction, in the lectures so far, I have attempted to emphasize much neglected passages, which teach very clearly of the growth and expansion of the church promised by Christ, and we'll, ne- we'll emphasize them even more in tomorrow's lectures. But it is true that there's another side to the story. There will be tribulation for the church as well, and very much depends on how this tribulation is viewed and where the foundation for the idea that the church will see much trouble in this age is found. One passage is perhaps most often identified with this aspect of the church's prospects. And that passage is Matthew 24, 1-36. The Olivet Discourse of our Lord is, of course, found not only in Matthew 24, but also in Mark 13 and Luke 21. Of course, the triple repetition of the passage speaks, I think, at some level to its importance. <clears throat> Matthew 24 has, however, been the subject of vast debate. Thus, the exact nature of what it teaches about the tribulation of the church is also debated. Let me overview that debate. There are at least four major ways in which it has been interpreted. First and foremost familiar in our day is the futurist interpretation. This view sees the great tribulation and coming of Christ spoken of in this passage as future and focused on the Jews during the final great tribulation before Christ returns. Second and growing today in popularity is the preterist view. This view sees the great tribulation and coming of Christ spoke of, spoken of in this passage as past and fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And even partial preterists will take that position without necessarily committing themselves to some sort of hyper-preterist or heretical viewpoint. Often held by post-millennialists, this view sees no reference to any present tribulation of the church in this passage. It is thought to speak exclusively of the tribulations of the Jews leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem. Third and very popular among some Reformed writers 
is the double fulfillment view. This view sees the great tribulation and coming of Christ as being fulfilled both in the destruction of Jerusalem and in a future tribulation and coming of Christ. It is thus view, it thus views the tribulation in view in a, in its second fulfillment as the tribulation of the church. The fourth view is, for lack of a better description, John Murray's view. Murray regards the great tribulation mentioned in the passage as fulfilled, but the coming of Christ mentioned as yet future. He sees these two events as actually contrasted in the passage, and this is the view I hold. It locates the tribulation of this passage primarily then in the tribulations of the Jews, leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem. But it also finds descriptions in the passage uh, <clears throat> of the troubles which encompass Christ's disciples during the entire interadventual uh, period. It does not see this passage as focused in any sense on a great tribulation of the church at the end of the age. It is not my purpose to attempt any lengthy rebuttal of the three views that I regard as faulty. Each of them seem to me, however, to confront immediate, confront immediately certain serious difficulties. And let me provide uh, a reference. <clears throat> Uh, a rebuttal, that is to say, to each of these computing views of the passage by pointing out the most serious objections to each of them. The futurist view in applying this passage to the end of this age fails to give due weight to the obvious reference in verses 15 to 28, obvious to everybody but them, of course, to the historical circumstances of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It simply cannot be denied that in the parallel passage, Luke 21, the language used describes the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It also fails to give due weight to Jesus' teaching that his return is not imminent at the time of, his trip, of this tribulation. On the futurist view, the second coming has already begun to occur or is about to occur during the future great tribulation. And we'll see as we look in detail at verses 15 to 28 <coughs> how uh, how gigantic this objection is to the futurist view. The preterist view has a similar problem with what appears to be a clear reference to the coming of Christ in glory in verses 29 to 31. While the preterist view explains this language in terms of similar figurative language used for historical judgments in the Old Testament, it entangles itself in a number of difficulties in doing so. First, if such language as we have in the Olivet Discourse can be explained as not requiring a second coming of Christ in glory, it seems hard to find any language in the New Testament which would not be capable of such like explanation. Hence, the Protestant interpretation endangers the Orthodox doctrine of the the second coming and is in danger of exegetically justifying its evil twin, hyperpreterism. Second, the reference to the end of the age in Matthew 24 clearly refers in parallel passages to something more than the end of the Jewish dispensation. <clears throat> when the disciples ask about the coming of the end of the age in verse 3, this sets the agenda for Jesus' response to their questions in the rest of the passage. The language they use is precisely the same in which 
uh, which Jesus used in Matthew 13, 39, 40, and 49, and 28, 20, when he speaks in parallel language of the end in verses 6, 13, and 14, he is responding to their question about the consummation of the age. The problem with the preterist interpretation is that Jesus' parallel comments about the end <clears throat> uh, consummation of this age cannot be adequately explained short of wholesale hyperpreterism. Notice particularly in addition to the passages already cited above, Luke 20, 34 to 36. Finally, it appears to me that there's a direct refutation of the preterist view in Luke 21. In Luke 21, 24 to 27, there is a description of the destruction of Jerusalem and the events which follow it, including the exile of the Jews into all the nations and the times of the Gentiles. Only after these events does Christ return. This cannot be a coming of Christ in AD 70 at the destruction of Jerusalem. The double fulfillment view compels us to make the same identical language refer to two completely different events. In my view, this creates impossible exegetical difficulties. The attempt is made by the double fulfillment view to explain this by means of the flat perspective of Old Testament prophecy. The proponents of the double fulfillment view believe that this means there's a kind of double fulfillment with regard to many Old Testament prophecies. I've acknowledged in a previous lecture that Old Testament prophets were characterized by a flat prophetic perspective with regard to the coming of the kingdom, which is now unfolded in the two-stage coming of Christ in the kingdom. I'm not convinced that this is at all the same thing as the double fulfillment view of Matthew 24. <clears throat> First, Christ coming in the clouds of heaven may refer to both his ascension and second coming because both are aspects of his single exaltation. This is different than being required to somehow find both a past and future fulfillment of the following passage, Matthew 24, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. That seems to me very different. Finding a double fulfillment of a passage like that seems very different than any appropriate uh, use of double fulfillment. Second, even if it were the same, we have seen that the flattened prophetic perspective has given way now that the kingdom has come. The least in the kingdom is now greater than John the Baptist in this regard. If we allow the double fulfillment view to invade the interpretation of New Testament prophecy, how can we know for sure that there is not a third and fourth coming of Christ to follow the second? Third, the double fulfillment view runs the risk of overthrowing the hermeneutical good sense of the 1685 Baptist Confession of Faith that says in chapter 1, paragraph 9, that the true and full sense of Scripture is not manifold, but one. Fourth, how will the double fulfillment view uh, deal with the straightforward language of Luke, 24, Luke 21? Quite clearly, there is no double fulfillment of the parallel passage there. Luke 21, in chronological sequence, deals with the suffering of Christ's disciples at the hands of the Jews, verses 16 to 19, the surrounding of Jerusalem by armies, verse 20, the necessity of distressing flight from Jerusalem before its destruction, verses 21 to 23, the actual conquest and destruction of Jerusalem and its inhabitants, verse 24a, the exile of the Jews into all the nations, verse 24b, the times of the Gentiles, verse 24c, and finally the second coming of Christ, verses 25 to 27. To apply double fulfillment to that passage is unthinkable and impossible.
But the best rebuttal, the best rebuttal for deficient views of Matthew 24 is the presentation of the proper view. And these faulty views then will be best refuted by simply presenting the interpretation of Professor Murray. Professor Murray's view may be read in its entirety in his collected writings. It's in volume two, page 387 and following. Now, I think the essay is entitled The Interadventual Period. Uh, What follows by way of exposition is deeply indebted to his fine treatment of this passage. The portion of that article dealing with Matthew 24, 1 to 36 is what I have primarily in view. Here is the outline of that portion of his article. It simply follows and outlines the passage. So you have the interadventual period and the advent of Christ. Uh, The introduction is the disciples' questions, verses 1 to 3. Uh, Roman numeral 1, the outstanding features characterizing this period, verses 4 to 14. Uh, Roman numeral 2, the great tribulation during this period, verses 15 to 28. Roman numeral 3, the second coming ending this period, verses 29 to 33. And then the conclusion, which takes us into the Lord's distinction. So, First of all, then, the disciples' questions in verses 1 to 3. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age. The Olivet Discourse is the answer to the disciples' question, found, questions found in verse 3. As Murray says, we should most probably regard the disciples as thinking of the destruction of the temple and the coming, the word is parousia, as coincident, happening at the same time. In other words, it seems clear from their questions that the disciples assumed that destruction of the temple could mean nothing less than the end of the world. And from the Jewish perspective, you can understand why they would assume that. But that brings us to Roman numeral one, the outstanding features characterizing this interadventual period. Matthew 24, verses 4 to 13. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many, and you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. You will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations and then The end shall come. These verses give an overview of the entire interadventual period, that is to say the period between twice first and second advents. The mention of the end in verses 6, 13, and 14 in comparison with verse 3 shows that Christ's perspective 
And these verses reaches out to the very end of the age and his own second coming. It is clear from these verses, therefore, that the gospel age will be characterized by tribulation, war, famine, earthquake, tribulation, apostasy, persecution, false religions, increased lawlessness, and the waning of affection for Christ will be the age-long experience of the church of Christ. But that brings us to Christ's description of the Great Tribulation during this period, verse 15 to 28. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babes in those days. We pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. For the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe them. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Having given the big picture, Verses 15 to 28 focus in on the event of most concern to Jesus' Jewish disciples, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Murray notes in verse 15, it is not as apparent as in Luke 21, 20, that Jesus is dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem. In the latter, the reference is explicit. When you see, when you see Jerusalem encompassed by armies, then you know, know ye that its desolation is drawn nigh. All the language of the passage clearly describes the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and gives warnings about it very pertinent to Jesus' first-century Jewish disciples. In particular, the warning against an imminent or secret appearance of the Messiah must be noticed. This makes clear that it's not a period just before the consummation of the age that is in view. And if you read uh, the parallel passages in the book of Acts, you see the warning was necessary. Jews did file false messiahs in the days, uh, uh, in the days uh, uh, of the book of Acts out uh, into the wilderness. Um, and so, and the danger might be that believing the lie that the Messiah has come back as an inner room someplace in Jerusalem, ready to smash the Roman armies, would also lead them not to take the advice of Jesus to flee from Jerusalem in those days. <clears throat> so all the language of the passage clearly describes the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and gives warnings about it pertinent to Jesus' first century Jewish disciples. In particular, the warning against an imminent or secret appearance of the Messiah must be underscored. This makes clear that it is not a period just before the consummation of the age that is in view. Some have found an objection to the interpretation here defended in the strong language of Matthew 21, uh, 20, uh, sorry, be Matthew 24, uh, verses 21 and 22. 
uh, that says, of course, that um, no such tribulation has ever occurred or will ever occur till the end of the age. Now, <clears throat> I think in response um, to that language, many have felt that such language can only describe the so-called great tribulation at the end of the age. Well, I have a number of responses to that notion. First, this objection presses the language to ridiculous literal lengths never intended by the Lord, ignores the possibility of the use uh, of legitimate hyperbole uh, by the Lord. For examples of hyperbole in the Lord's uh, teaching, see Matthew 5, 29, 23, 24, John 12, 19, Luke 14, 26, Mark 9, 23. It also is forced to ignore the plain reference of the rest of the passage to the events of A.D. 70. And then thirdly, unless one adopts a strictly futurist view, one, one, say, a proponent of the double fulfillment view, is forced to allow that some fulfillment of this horrifying prediction must have occurred in A.D. 70. <clears throat> this interpretation also displays ignorance of the massive and horrifying massacre of the Jews at this time. A reading of the account of Josephus is recommended to rectify that minimizing of what actually happened to the Jews at the destruction of Jerusalem. Among other things, of course, Josephus says that a million Jews, a million Jews were crucified outside Jerusalem. <clears throat> the objection also fails to appreciate the covenantal ramifications of this event for the Jews. In this, the, in this event, the wrath of God came upon them to the uttermost, 1 Thessalonians 2.16, uh, and uh, the final destruction of the last remnant of the Old Testament, the theocratic kingdom, was uh, enacted. Well, <clears throat> we come in the third place to the second coming ending this period, verses 29 to 33. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now, with this section of Matthew 24, we approach one of the major difficulties with Professor Murray's view. Murray recognizes this and says, when we come to verse 29 we encounter some difficulty. For the tribulation of those days might appear to refer to the great tribulation of verse 21, which is associated particularly with the desolation of Jerusalem. How could it be said that immediately after 70 AD, the events specified in verses 29 to 31 took place? To put the problem in other words, verse 29 seems to say that immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem, the coming of Christ in glory occurs. How can verses 15 to 28 
refer to a destruction of Jerusalem that took place in 70 AD, and verse 29 referred to the future coming of Christ in glory. And that is where I was stuck for many years, frankly. But very properly, Murray once again finds the solution in the parallel passages passage in Luke 21. He shows that Luke inserts words of Jesus not recorded by Matthew that wonderfully help to clarify the meaning. Here are the words that Luke inserts between what is recorded in Matthew 24, 28 and what is recorded in Matthew 24, 29. Luke 21, 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. These words make clear, I think, very clear, I think, that the tribulation of those days mentioned in Matthew 24, 29 includes not only the Jews falling by the edge of the sword, but also their being led into captivity, the times of the Gentiles, and thus the entire interadventual period. It is after the tribulation of those days, including all of those things, including the exile and captivity of the Jews in the times of the Gentiles, is after, immediately after the tribulation of those days that the second coming in glory comes. The comments of Murray at this time are exceedingly helpful. Luke includes an observation in Jesus' discourse not included in Matthew's account, and it belongs to what precedes Matthew 24, 29, and must therefore be inserted. The observation given in Luke 21, 24 is that Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times the Gentiles are fulfilled. So in view of this element, it is apparent that our Lord's delineation extended far beyond the destruction of Jerusalem and the events immediately associated with it. Hence the period, those days, in Matthew 24, 29, must be regarded <clears throat> as the days that extend to the threshold of what is specified in verses 29 to 31. But apart from Luke 21, 24, it would be reasonable, even on the basis of Matthew's own account, to take the expression, the tribulation of those days, inclusively and not restrictively. Those days could properly be taken to mean the days preceding that of which Jesus now proceeds to speak. The days depicted already in verses 4 to 14, and the tribulation, not exclusively the great tribulation of verse 21, but the tribulation which, according to the earlier part of the discourse, is represented as characterizing the interadventual period as a whole. I think that makes perfectly good sense. And all of that brings us then to the marvelous passage uh, that contains the Lord's distinction that makes the preceding interpretation uh, clear and necessary, I think. And those verses are these. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Murray begins his treatment of these verses by a lengthy treatment of the meaning of generation in verse 34. And that is certainly an important treatment. He argues that it is wholly untenable to make this word mean race rather than generation. 
That is to say, some take it to mean this, this kind of people, this race of people, will not cease until all these things take place. He argues that no, the term does not mean race, but means living generation. That particular generation of Jews that lived at that time. And he uses three arguments, which I think uh, are, are compelling. First, he argues that in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament used at the time of Christ, this Greek word translates a Hebrew word that means generation and not race. Second, he argues that if Jesus had intended to say race, another and clearer Greek word was available. Third, he argues that the meaning of the word generation in the New Testament is clearly that of the living generation or the generations in succession to one another. And so it specifies a certain time period of a limited character, a generation. In particular, Murray notes at this point the clearly parallel use of this of generation in the near context. Matthew 24, 20, pardon me, 23, 36 is very parallel to Matthew 24, 36. Notice this statement in its context. It seems beyond doubt that this parallel use is meant of the then living generation of Jews. It, Jesus says there, therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this, this generation. Very parallel, identical language, in fact. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent uh, to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now, it seems to me that that passage can have no other meaning than on the then-living generation of Jews, uh, the culmination of Jewish guilt was going to be poured out, and that that, that, that would be associated with the desolation of their house or temple. And this can have no other reference than to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Now, with this understanding of the word generation required then in verse 34, Murray then addresses the obvious question raised by the verse. How then are we to resolve the question posed by the events specified in the preceding context, especially in verses 29 to 31, which did not occur in the generation of which our Lord spoke? I hope you realize how important what we're saying right now in this particular study is to a lot of popular prophetic misunderstanding. You know why there were 88 reasons that Christ would come in 1988? Because that was exactly one generation, 40 years after the establishment of the state of Israel. That's why. And again and again and again, Christians... Uh, and, and Christian prophetic thought has been twisted up by twisted interpretations of this very passage. And I hope that uh, Murray un untwists those misunderstandings in all of our minds in the next few minutes. So then how were to resolve the question posed by the events specified in the preceding context, especially in verses 29 to 31, which did not occur in the 
in the generation of which our Lord spoke. So the interpretation, I guess, that was behind both 88 reasons why Christ will come in 1988 and a lot of other prophetic speculation is that the generation didn't start till the generation uh, that it was alive when the state of Israel was formed. Now, is there any basis for that? None whatsoever. But that was a theory, okay? Now, Murray's reply to this problem, question, of how uh, the passage might seem to say that the return of Christ would come within that living generation of Jews, is to argue that there is a contrast intended in verses 34 to 36 between the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of Christ in glory. We are to read these verses, says Murray, in terms of a contrast. It's that contrast that explains everything. Matthew 24, 34 to 36 is often misunderstood because people do not appreciate the contrast that Jesus intends in these verses. Verse 34 must be contrasted with verse 36, or the entire meaning of the passage will be mistaken if it doesn't become completely incomprehensible. That there is a contrast intended in these verses is plain from three things highlighted in them. First, the fact that verse 36 begins with the word but must not be overlooked. This is the conjunction in Greek commonly used to introduce a contrasting thought. No, it's... uh, Let me just double-check what I'm about to say. Before I say something that will be confusing to you because of a faulty memory. Word but in verse 36 is the conjunction de. It's not the strongest Greek adversative, but it is uh, used frequently in the Bible in a way that demands the English translation but, the adversative translation. Okay. So the fact that verse 36 begins with the word but must not be overlooked. This is the conjunction in Greek commonly used to introduce a contrasting thought. Second, the contrast in the two different demonstrative pronouns used in verses 34 and 36, respectively, must not be overlooked. These is the immediate demonstrative pronoun used to designate something relatively near at hand. It is appropriately used to describe the relatively near occurrence of all the things associated with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That is the remote demonstrative pronoun used to designate something uh, that, not designative, I don't even know if that's a word, designate, something that is relatively distant. It's appropriately used to designate the day and hour of Christ's coming in glory. Now look back at the passage, and I want you to understand what I'm saying here. Um, Both in English and in Greek, there are what uh, may be called immediate and remote demonstrative pronouns. Uh, What do I mean? In English, we have this, this, and that. We have these and those. Immediate demonstrative pronoun, 
remote demonstrative pronoun. Capish? So that <clears throat> the same thing happens in Greek. In Greek, you have immediate demonstrative pronouns, this, these, and remote demonstrative pronouns, pronouns those, that. All right? And so there's a difference of perspective that is implied by the two different kinds of pronouns. Now, the second reason I'm saying that we have a contrast here is you have, the, you have that contrast in demonstrative pronouns here. In verse 20, 34, you have this generation, these things. In verse 36, that day and hour. There's a contrast, often easily overlooked, but it's a contrast that uh, is uh, certainly justified by the distinction between immediate and remote demonstrative pronouns, both in English and Greek. Um, <clears throat> and so, these is the immediate demonstrative pronoun used to designate something relatively near. That is the remote demonstrative pronoun used to designate something that is relatively distant. It is appropriately used to designate the day and hour of Christ's coming in glory, which is remote as opposed to the destruction of Jerusalem, which is immediate, or at least much nearer. Third, the contrast in the matter of time signs also cannot be overlooked. This generation, as Murray shows, is clearly a reference to the then-living generation of Jews. Thus, a general time sign is given for the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, when Jesus says that no one knows, including himself, of the day and hour of his return, there is a plain distinction introduced as to time signs between the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming of Christ. No time sign of any kind is given for the second coming. There are signs, I might add. So, well, there are signs of Christ's second coming. Yes, there are signs, but there are no time signs, right? Uh, there's a difference between signs, as you see the day of the Lord drawing near, the mystery of iniquity already works, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. Those are all signs of the drawing near of Christ's coming, but they are not time signs, and that's the distinction that's at stake here. So the point is, Jesus gives a time sign for the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It is this generation, but he gives no time sign for the, for the coming of the second coming of Christ. That is totally without time sign. Okay? So the contrast of Matthew 24, 34 to 36 is a contrast in terms of events and a contrast in terms of time signs. Uh, so you have verse 34 differentiated by the but of verse 36, and then you have a contrast in events. All these things, immediate demonstrative pronoun, that day and hour, remote demonstrative pronoun, and a contrast in time signs, this generation, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple occur within the bounds of that living generation of Jews, but of that day and hour, the second coming of Christ, no one knows. Now, there are several other factors that tend to support this understanding of the contrast of Matthew 24, 34 to 36. First, Matthew 23, 36 is clearly parallel. 
Notice the recurrence uh, of the, both the phrase, all these things, and also the phrase, this generation. The meaning of Matthew 23, 36 is over clear in its context. It is that the Jewish temple of that day and that living generation of Jews would experience the accumulated wrath of God. Verse 37. This generation plainly refers to the land living generation of Jews. All these things plainly refers to all the things associated, not with the second coming of Christ, but the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Thus, this parallel passage exactly confirms the meaning we have attached to Matthew 24, 34 to 36. Second, this interpretation of Matthew 24, 34 to 36 fits well with Matthew 24, 3. There, Jesus' disciples <clears throat> uh, plainly associate, as we have seen, the destruction of the temple and the second coming. It was necessary for this confusion to be sorted out if Jesus' disciples were not to be left vulnerable to terrible disillusionment. Matthew 24, 34 to 36 is a clear answer to this confusion. They were confused. What's needed is a contrast that will sort out their confusion. Here we have that contrast. It is the only answer contained in the passage to that confusion. Notice that verse 34 deals with the these things mentioned in verse 3. Well, verse 36 deals with the matter of the time sign of Christ's coming in glory. It says there is no such sign, of course. Third, the interpretation of Matthew 24, verses 34 to 36, offered by John Murray, is confirmed by the fact that the actual fulfillment marvelously accords with this view. As a matter of fact, the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed in the lifetime of that living generation of Jews. In AD 70, exactly 40 years from the time in AD 30 when Jesus uttered his prophecy, precisely the period of time it took for a generation of Jews to die out in the wilderness, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by Roman armies. Um, and there's something that just... Uh, is so compelling about what actually happens as a matter of historical fulfillment. An actual historical fulfillment. One generation. Exactly one generation. Forty years of one generation pass, and Jerusalem is destroyed. So by way of conclusion, the Olivet Discourse found in Matthew 24 certainly confirms the view that the experience of the church during this age will be one of tribulation. Verses 4 to 14 summarizes the course of this age in terms of war, calamity, tribulation, and apostasy. There is nothing to indicate the cessation of any of these things before what Jesus calls the end. And so there's nothing to indicate a great golden age before Jesus returns of righteousness, peace, and prosperity for the world. Verses 15 to 20 out, 28 single out the destruction of Jerusalem and its aftermath for the Jews for attention. We have seen that the phrase used in verse 29, the tribulation of those days, refers not just to the destruction of Jerusalem, but to the continuing dispersion of the Jews into all the nations until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke 21, verses 21 to 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jesus returns in glory. Thus, Jesus holds out no hope for the cessation of tribulation for the Jews, or for the church, before the second coming. For both spiritual Israel and physical Israel, the earthly prospect is one in the light of this passage of tribulation. 
This thought leads us to the subject of part, should we read part four, the biblical prospects uh, for the Jews, which we'll come to uh, later tomorrow. Of course, it must not be forgotten that Jesus also speaks of the preaching of the gospel to all the nations before the end, verse 14. Thus, the tribulation must not be viewed as frustrating the spread of the gospel or the growth of the church. We may conclude with the words of Murray cited at the beginning of the study. In his exposition of this passage, John Murray concludes, you've heard the quote before, but it deserves repeating, that interadventual history is characterized by tribulation, turmoil, strife, perplexity, wars, and rumors of wars. Contemporaneous with this, however, is the universal expansion of the church. Of course, that's implied by the universal preaching of the gospel to all the nations. Well, I hope that's helpful to you. Uh, I have to say that uh, having puzzled over uh, Matthew 24 from my dispensational time as a boy till, I don't know, into my 30s or 40s at least, uh, when I finally read John Murray's article, it was one of those eureka moments in my theological history. Okay? I hope it has been for you as well. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.